Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, if you uh, are new to our church or if you've not been around, you know that last week, uh, you don't know, that last week we finished a rather long series on the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and it took us a really long time to get through it. Uh, we're done with that, and this summer what we're going to do is we're going to look for the months of June and July at the mission of the church as it relates to the work of mercy in the month of June, and then just what it, as it relates to uh, the, the work of just mission and taking the gospel uh, to people who need to hear about Jesus and also to the ends of the earth. So that's going to be what we're doing this summer. We're going to do some different things. We're going to have some testimony times. We'll have a testimony this morning uh, and pro- hopefully every week. Uh, during uh, the summer, somebody's going to get up and talk about uh, a very practical reality of how what we're, what we're talking about is working itself out and how God's providing and meeting needs and taking care of people. So we're going to do, it's going to, I hope it's going to be a blessing to you in that way. We're also, what we're going to do is we're going to take, uh, each month we're going to go to different portions of the scripture. So this morning we're going to be in the law in the Old Testament and then the prophets and then the gospels and then the letters of Paul. So we're going to kind of take a broad sweep of the scripture to look at these themes, again, this month, the theme of mercy or generosity or what it looks like for us to care for one another and especially to care for the poor and the needy among us uh, and then kind of work our way through the Bible and see that this is something the Bible talks about from beginning to end. So this morning, we're going to be reading a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 15. It's going to be on the screen behind me. It's also printed for you in your worship folder. This is a passage out of the law given to Israel by the Lord, um, maker of heaven and earth, uh, to order their life together as a people toward the work of, of generosity, being a community of generosity. And so uh, let's read this together. And then, and then I, I should say, and then after we read this passage from Deuteronomy 15, we're going to look at a very brief passage from Acts chapter 4 of, of how the early Christians in the New Testament started to work some of these things out in the way they lived together. So let's read these two passages of Scripture this morning uh, together, okay? Deuteronomy 15. Beginning in verse 1, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever, is your, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all that is commanded, uh, do do all of this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you, as he promised you. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient to his need, whatever it may be. Take care. Lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake for There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, to the poor in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. 
You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. And then from Acts chapter 4, the early Christians working these things out in their common life together. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is God's word. Uh, Last week at the end of our series in the book of Matthew, we saw a scene Jesus depicts of the day of judgment. And on the day of judgment, the Lord is going to, Jesus the king is going to gather the nations to himself and he's going to divide between those who truly belong to him and those who don't. Excuse me. (coughs) Oh, that's terrible. Into the microphone. I apologize. Pray for us. We're on like day number 13 of sickness in our house. The plague has descended on us. But the distinguishing mark between those who belong to Jesus and those who don't is a life of radical generosity and mercy to the poor and the needy. Jesus says, you, you, when you saw somebody hungry, you clothed them. When you, or he says, when you saw me hungry, you fed me. When you saw me naked, you clothed me. When you saw me without a home, you brought me into your home. And they say, when did we see you naked and clothed you? And when did we see you Hungry and feed you, and when, when, did we, when were you in prison and we visited you? And he said, when you do it to the least of one of these, my brothers, you do it to me. And that this is the distinguishing mark. It's that. It's that heart of generosity and mercy towards those who are in need, who, which, which distinguishes those who genuinely have faith in Jesus from those who don't. And the reason for this is just this, that when a Christian, this is what we said last week, when a Christian sees somebody in need, somebody who's poor, they know they're looking in a mirror. That, that is, the Christian knows that he was poor, he was needy, and Jesus came to his aid. And so, what we said is, the more you come to understand the doctrine of justification by faith, the more it's going to produce in you a life of justice lived towards other people, especially the poor and the needy. That there's a necessary and inseparable connection between the two of those things. And that's why the distinguishing mark of a Christian is a life of caring for and providing for the poor and the needy, right? And so we said a couple of applications that we weren't able to get to. What, what, you know, what do I, you know, this was what I, kind of people were saying to me after we were done. You know, well, okay, but what do I do? I mean, what is it, you're, I, I, amen, I, I agree with everything you're saying, but I mean, what do I do tomorrow, you know, in my life to kind of get me closer to obedience in these areas? And so this is, you know, these applications that we went through last week are just a couple things. That the first thing, the first need is really just that there be a, a point of intersection. That the greatest obstacle to living the kind of life the Bible calls most of us to is that in reality our lives very rarely intersect with the, the lives of the needy and the poor in our city. That we need to be intentional, in other words, to move toward the need in our city, to go where the need is, to move, we said, literally move into the poor neighborhoods of our city, to have ministries that meet physical and practical needs, to give bread to the hungry, to bring the homeless into our homes, to visit the sick and those who are in prison, to go to them. 
But there was a second application we didn't get into. And the second thing is we've then got to increase our capacity for this work. In other words, we've got to figure out ways to make room in our lives, right, for this kind of radical generosity. We've got to budget. We've got to be strategic with our time and our money and our resources in order to have the greatest possible capacity as a people for the work that Jesus sends us to do. And that means, number three then, then there's an issue of restraint. Then if that's true, for us to have the greatest capacity possible, then we're going to have to issue some sort of restraint. We're going to have to live on less. We're going to have to go without. We're going to have to eat out less. We're going to have to downsize our lives if necessary, do whatever we must strategically to increase our capacity for the work that Jesus sends us out to do. And then ultimately, we're going to have to take this commitment to justice and mercy and and, and generosity, even into the smallest little decisions of our lives, to begin to consider, you know, what kind of cars we drive and what kind of food we eat and what coffee we drink and all of these kinds of issues that really are, at the, in the end, issues of justice and mercy. And these are the things we want to spend some time talking about this, this summer, okay? Is what does it look like for us to become wise in all of those steps and how to become a people whose lives are streamlined toward the work that Jesus gives us? I have an illustration uh, and I want to give as many of these as I can, but this is one I came across, and it, and it just kills me because uh, it's a story about Mark Rick, who's the uh, head coach at the University of Georgia. And I'm still bitter because Florida State took a nosedive as soon as he left to go there. But he, I, I've always thought him to be an upstanding, pretty sincere guy. And I found, a, a friend sent me an article about this story. Uh, Mark Rick, who has made $25 million in the eight years he's at Georgia or whatever, has a $2 million piece of property close to the University of Clemson that he has put on the market for sale. And, of course, everybody knows that he's possibly on the hot seat there. They've not done well in the last few years. So the the suspicion began to run through kind of the blogosphere and the Internet. Well, he's putting this house on the market, so he's probably getting ready to get fired. You know, he's, he's getting his life ready because he, you know, he's probably not going to be at Georgia very long. And so all the speculation came out. And then there was this guy who, who wrote a blog, and he, he was just commenting on this. And he says, what's fascinating is, is, is I knew that was going to be the case. And so I called Mark Rick, and I asked him what the real issue is. And it wasn't at all that Mark Rick was afraid he was going to get fired. Here was his response, which this guy quoted. And I just want you to hear this. Genuine follower of Jesus uh, and I know we're talking about astronomical numbers, $25 million and a $2 million piece of property, but just try to bring this into your, into your life. Here's what Mark Rick said. He said, this is, I quote, Within the last year I read this book, The Hole in Our Gospel by Richard Stearns. He's the president of World Vision. And I think people understand who World Vision is, but basically they help the poor. This is Mark Rick, okay? Through their organization, you can help children, you can build wells, you can buy them donkeys, whatever people need. World Vision helps people across the world. Well, anyway, there was a lot of statistical data in there about the amount of people that live on a dollar a day around the world. Billions of people. He says, so I'm reading this book, and it really affected me. It helped me realize that what we have is way more than we need, and that our ability to give is hindered by this property. So I guess that's the best way to tell you. We just wanted, listen, here, listen to We just wanted to be in a better position to give and bless people that don't have anything, and we felt like this was one way to be able to do that. Right? That's what I'm talking about. I mean, that's the kinds of things that we're praying are going to be 
begin to kind of roll around and rattle around in our heads, is how do we begin to be a people who really think strategically about how do we restrain ourselves, how do we streamline our lives? You know, he says, it helped me realize this is, you know, we have way more than we need and that our ability to give is hindered by this. And so we felt like this was one way to be able to better meet the needs of the people in our community and in our world. That's what we're after, okay? And this morning to do that, we're going to look at this passage from Deuteronomy 15 in Acts 2. And we're going to see three things that ultimately, uh, to begin this conversation about these things, ultimately a life of generosity begins with a call into community. And that's what this passage is really about. God is calling us into community with one another. And so we're going to see how this works itself out in the community that God's creating by his spirit. Okay, so there's a call to community. And then there's the obstacles to community. And then there, thirdly, is how the gospel ultimately is the power to create the kind of community we see here. So those three, those three points this morning as we walk through these things together on our way to celebrating the Lord's Supper together. So first, we're called into community. Now, if you're not a Christian, okay, and you're here this morning, let me, kind of, let me talk you through this. That To be a Christian means much more than at some point you made some kind of decision. It means, uh, in the final analysis, that you belong to a redeemed community of, community of people whose life together is characterized by love for one another and generosity towards one another and not sin and selfishness and greed and all the things that characterize kind of our society at large. The Deuteronomy here, we're in Deuteronomy 15, it's part of the law that God gave to his people when he redeemed them in order to order their life together in submission to his authority and kingship over them toward a certain way of living together. He's aiming them at generosity and compassion and selflessness towards one another. And so it begins with this. He wants us to see here, beginning in Deuteronomy 15, that a fellow Christian is not just an acquaintance. I mean, the people that we, you know, we are churching together, and that means that toward one another, a fellow Christian is not just an acquaintance or somebody you know from church or even a friend. Look at the word here. He says they're a brother or sister. I mean, do you see this in this passage? Verse 4, or excuse me, verse 2. He says, you are to not enact it of your neighbor, your brother, he goes on to say. So the person, he's talking about a person who's fallen into hard times and has needed a little help. And what Moses says is, is this person in need is not just some person, he's a neighbor. And that implies a certain level of familiarity. It implies a certain level of responsibility. You know, we I mean, especially, not so much anymore, but in the old days, you know, you had to look out for your neighbors. That's why you moved close to one another. But, but not just a neighbor, he says. See, he's, he's not just a neighbor, he's a brother. He's family. And everybody knows that when your brother or sister needs help, you don't turn your back on them. You can't. And so there's this familial bond that exists between Christians. And you see it again in verse 7. If one of your brothers, do you see that there, becomes poor. And then again in verse 9 and verse two, 12. So four times in these 15 verses we're told to begin to see, we're, we're, to help us see one another, not just as acquaintances or people, you know, friends or people we kind of know, but as brothers and sisters. And it was there last week in Matthew 25. Lord, when did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you hungry and give you food? When you did it to the least of one of these, my brothers. You know, it was there in James 2, in John chapter 3, if you see a brother in need. I mean, see, that's the impulse. So the, the, compa- the, the call to compassion and helping and generosity is to recognize the one in need as a brother or sister. 
And so let me try to summarize the teaching of the Bible at this, at this point in this passage, just give you a summary statement of what, what we're being taught here. And it's just this, that to belong to the church, to belong to the community of people that God is redeeming, means that you're a part of a community of people who have claims on one another's gifts and time and resources and money and possessions. And so within the Christian community, helping one another and being generous towards one another, as we're called to here, is not a matter of charity, it's a matter of right. I mean, this is radical. In other words, when, when a brother or sister's in need, it's not just that it would be kind of us to help them. We must. We're commanded to. It's a matter of justice. They have a right to expect our help, whatever their need might be. I mean, because that's what it means to be bound together by the gospel. And I realize how un-American that sounds. I mean, completely. I mean, we're so thoroughly uh, individualistic and private in our culture Uh, We can hardly comprehend this, but the Bible doesn't think the way we do. I mean, it doesn't. The Bible does not think the way we do. I mean, look look back at the call to worship, if you would, uh, and what is called the gleaning laws there. And what Moses tells the people, what God is telling people in his laws, he says, when you go through your fields and you 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 harvest your fields, don't go back a second time. Obviously, you're going to miss some things along the way, but don't go back a second time. All that stuff that you missed, you know, that's still kind of there, leave it. Leave it for the sojourner, the widow, you know, and the orphan. In the NIV, that's what the NIV says. If you have an NIV Bible, leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. But the Hebrew says so much more there. The language says so much more than just that, than leave it. The ESV is closer. The ESV the says it shall be for. In other words, all that stuff that's left over in your field, right, that's yours. I mean, it's your property. But the ESV says, it shall be for the fatherless, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. But even that doesn't go far enough. I mean, Christopher Wright, in his commentary on this passage, points out that it is an expression in the Hebrew that normally is used to indicate ownership. ownership. And so he says, the sense is, do not pick the forgotten sheaf, the remaining olives, and the grapes. They belong to the alien, the orphan, and the widow. They are theirs by right. In other words, my property is not my property. It belongs to somebody else. The remainder of the harvest is theirs. They have every right to the final harvesting. And that's a different kind of community than any other any of us are familiar with. I mean, we a people who have claims on one another's property, one another's gifts, one another's resources, one another's monies, money and possessions. But look at the way Luke describes the way the early Christians lived together, if you would, in Acts chapter 4. I mean, they obviously understood the implications of what's being taught here. We see there in verse 32. I mean, this is absolutely earth-shattering. And I know pastors, I mean, I guilty. Pastors are so guilty of overstatement, it's ridiculous. We love to overstate things. Uh, I, Jesus overstated things, and so I think it's Christ-likeness, but Ashley tells me differently. <laughs> right? But... But this is absolutely earth-shattering, mind-boggling stuff, okay? And it's just this, that, um, that, he, that in verse 32, they were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Right, so there's this theological, missional oneness. They're one heart and one soul. Luke says, right? They had a common vision for their lives, a common purpose, a common, 
a common theological center, a common set of values. They were all headed in the same direction. They were one in heart, in mind, in soul. And it led to a practical oneness. They had everything in common. Nobody considered their things their things. But they had everything in common. And the word there is quantania. It's that word fellowship, which we've turned into, you know, what you do around the coffee pot at church for five minutes before you come into the worship service. We have fellowship. But what it means is, it means their lives were completely intertwined and inseparable. The experience of the individual had a ripple effect throughout the whole. That whatever gifts or resources or material possessions or property or money an individual had, it did not just belong to him. Now, what's happening is that the early Christian community, by the power of the Spirit here in, De- in, in Acts chapter 4, is becoming the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 15. Let me just give you one example. If you look back at Deuteronomy 15 and verse 4 of that chapter, you'll see that the consequence, God says, of becoming this kind of community. Look at the vision. I just want you to see the scope of the vision that God has for his people here. In verse 4, he says, There will be no poor among you. In other words, if we really live this way, not, not considering our belongings our own, but sharing with one another and helping one another, then everyone could have what they need to thrive. There'd be no poor among you. You see that? The among you there means among the community of faith, the church, not society in general, among God's people, that God would so richly bless that there would always be enough for everybody. And so the vision of Deuteronomy 15 was rooted in a deeper conviction of God's generosity towards his people. They would, verse, verse 6, they would lend. Do you see this? Lend to many nations and borrow from none and rule over many nations and be ruled by none. In other words, they wouldn't have to worry about how they were going to pay the bills. God would provide and pay, pay the bills. He would take care of them. And therefore, they were free to be radically generous. No poor among you. And then come to Acts 4 again. In Acts 4, verse 34, what does Luke say? What does he say about the early church? Do you see it there? There was not a needy person among them. There it is. They did it. It's possible by the power of the Spirit to become a kind of people who are so radically generous towards one another, there was not a needy person among them. But it requires a radically disciplined way of life together, and and this is what Deuteronomy 15 is providing. It's giving us, it's giving us the, you know, it's ordering our lives in a specific way in order to produce this common vision of what it means for us to live together. And just one example in this passage, and it's called the Sabbath year, the year of canceling debts. This is what Deuteronomy 15 is about. Look at verse 1. Here's the teaching. I mean, here's what God's commanding, that every seven years all debts were to be canceled. Now, everybody got a fresh start. Now, if you're paying off student loans or you're trying to pay off your credit card, that might sound too good to be true. But what it was is it was a mechanism intended to break the cycles of poverty that are caused by long-term debt. And so if a fellow Israelite fell on hard times, then God commanded the rest of the community who had means to loan that person whatever they needed with two provisions. And here are the two provisions. First, no interest. No interest. And then secondly, in the seventh year, no matter how much of the loan remained unpaid, the debt was canceled. Okay, talk about a high-risk loan. I mean, the whole thing, you can see, I mean, all the business guys in the room are going, oh my, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. 
right? That's, you cannot be profitable doing that. And that's the point. I mean, the whole thing, the whole thing is set up to disadvantage the creditor for the sake of the well-being of the debtor. And that's the point. Over and over again, the law makes specific provision to limit, to limit the financial output or the financial security of the more wealthy members of the community for the sake of the poor and the needy in the community in order to force both the rich and the poor to live by faith. Isn't that remarkable? And you see, see, see so that's just one example. And I'm, I'm running out of time. We've got to get going. So one example of the kind of community Deuteronomy 15 envisions in Acts 4 shows it's possible. But what are the obstacles? Okay, and that's the second point. The second point is uh, the obstacles to becoming this kind of community. A, a test case. Okay, here's the test case. So you can see what the obstacle is. Verse 9 of Deuteronomy 15. What if in the sixth year... A brother came to you and asked for a loan. <laughs> okay, this is great. Right, so you know, okay, we've got 12 months, and then it'll be the Sabbath year, and we'll have to cancel the debt. So there's no way, there's no way this person's going to be able to pay back the money he's asking you to loan him. You can kiss the money goodbye. Okay, what are you going to do? That's what God wants to know. What are you going to do? I mean, you uh, say no, right? I mean, that's a bad investment. I mean, who in their right mind would, would do that? And let me answer that for you. Nobody. And so God warns. Look at the warning. He says, don't look grudgingly on your poor brother and refuse to give him what he needs. Even if it's the sixth year. And you know that the seventh year is coming and you have to cancel the debt the next year. Don't do that. You'll be guilty of sin. So this is the obstacle then. And it's just this. It's just our selfishness and self-interest. It's being, being willing to consider obedience to a certain point until it's too costly. In other words... I'm willing to be generous and to help others as long as it doesn't affect my lifestyle, right? As long as, it doesn't, as long as it fits into my financial plan and doesn't threaten my future. I mean, it's casual, casual generosity, but not radical, sacrificial, life-altering generosity. I'm not willing to go there. And what this reveals is that I'm still most passionate about my needs and my wants and my desires and my kids' future. You know, I'm concerned about me. And I'm concerned about you too, Right? Until it begins to conflict with my concern for me. <laughs> and then what happens? Me wins. What I need, what I want comes first. What you need, what you want comes second. And me before you. And that's what I mean by self-interest. But then, but then here is God's law. Here is God's law coming into our lives to say no. No. My people will not live that way because I don't live that way. Me before you. If you live that way, look at verse 9, you'll be guilty of sin. That's sin. That's rebellion. It's not living in submission to God's commands. It's not living by faith. It's sin. And what's more, it's not how we've been treated. God doesn't live that way. He didn't look out for his own interests. He wasn't willing to help only to a certain point. God, the scripture teaches, impoverished himself for our sake. And that's why Paul says in Philippians, do nothing out of Selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Don't look out just for your own interest. Look out to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. You know that passage probably, right? And how did Jesus live? He didn't live selfishly. It was never me before you with him. No, it's just the, just the opposite. Jesus was God, but he didn't hold tightly to his authority. He became nothing. He lived as a servant. He ultimately died on the cross for our sins. His whole life was... You, 
before me. You, then me. You first, then me. Your needs, your needs met, then my needs met. See, I, I'm not going to make sure my needs are met, Jesus says. I'll go without. I'll do whatever I have to do to meet your needs. And in the law, God is calling us to the imitation of God's love for us in Jesus. Not me before you, but you before me. And what's unique about this passage is the language it uses to provide the diagnostic for this. Okay, It's this extended metaphorical use of the body language. And so if you want to uncover your selfishness, here's how you do it. You look at your eyes, you look at your heart, you look at your hands. What do you think, what do you feel, what do you do about the needs of others in the community? So verse 9, first the eye, he says, don't look grudgingly. Literally, don't have an evil eye. In other words, when you see somebody in need, you know, in the community of faith, what do you do? Do you look at that person and judge them? I mean, do do, do you say to yourself, well, you know, he must be lazy or irresponsible to have gotten himself in such a mess? Or do you take the time to get the backstory? Do you slow down? Do you ask questions? Do you move into that person's life and get in their shoes and try to feel what it's like for them? Or do you just stand over them in judgment? as an excuse for not helping. But not only the eye, the heart. And we've got to kind of move through these, right? The heart. He says in verse 7, 9, and 10, don't harden your heart. I mean, what you do with your eyes will determine what happens in your heart. Don't shut off your compassion towards one another. That's what that literally means. Allow the needs and the concerns of others to affect you. Do the needs of your brothers and sisters move you deeply? Are you affected by the pain and heartache of others? Or are you just indifferent? Do your, does your heart go out? Or do you not feel anything? Okay, third, the hand then. Right, the eyes, the heart, the hand. He says in verse 7, don't close your hand, open it. In other words, compassion leads to action. So when you, open, when you open your heart, it will lead to you opening your hand. The hand is the symbol of power. It indicates a person, person's ability to do something, to accomplish something. And the law says, don't close your hand. And you know what that is, don't you? I mean, those of you who've had kids, this has replayed itself over and over again in your life. One kid has something the other kid wants, and what does she do? She grabs it, and she refuses to let go, while the other kid tries to grab it out of their hands, and a wrestling match ensues, right? Because I'm not going to let you kid have this, right? It's mine. And the law says, don't do that. Don't do that with your time. Don't do that with your resources. Don't do that with your money. Be generous. Use your power and your influence to help those who are weak and poor and in need. And so the law is asking us, you know, will you look attentively into the lives of the other members of the community? Will you open your heart to them? Will you allow their struggles and heartaches to break your heart? Will you open your hands and give them access to whatever resources or material possessions you have that they might need? Don't devote your life to meeting your needs. Trust God to meet your needs and devote your life to meeting the needs of others. Don't spend all of your time and all of your energy and all of your money providing for yourself. Trust God to provide for you and then take your time and your energy and your money and use it to provide and care for others. That's the teaching of this passage. But the obstacle to that is just this, this self-interest and selfishness. And at the bottom of our selfishness is unbelief. And by that I mean we don't believe God will provide for us. And so we have to provide for ourselves. I mean, we don't believe he'll be generous to us. And that's why Deuteronomy 15 is full of promises of God's faithfulness and provision. The Lord will bless you, Moses says. He's going to bless you. You'll you'll lend but won't have to borrow. God's going to rain down heaven upon you. You don't have to live selfishly because God promises to always take care of you and provide for you. And so you can pursue the interests of others ahead of your own interests because the Lord promises to give you all that you need. And so you see the summary. Verse 14 As the Lord your God has blessed you, so you shall give. 
I mean, that's the standard. And the way you do this, so third point then, the way you do this, and the key to this whole thing is in the next verse, in verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you, therefore I command you this day. I mean, the way you show this, the way God forms us as this kind of congregation of people, the way you show this kind of generosity the pastor calls you to is by remembering. Remember, you were a slave and God redeemed you. Remember, you were powerless before the Egyptians and God rescued you. Remember, you were poor and God impoverished himself for you. I mean, how's he treated you? How's he been generous with you? Make that the measure of your generosity towards others. See, unbelief is spiritual amnesia. It's forgetfulness. It's remember, God says. Remember all that I've done for you. I mean, the reality is this, that when Israel was suffering in their slavery in Egypt, the Bible says that they cried out to God, and here's how he responded. The Bible says God saw. He saw and he knew. He doesn't look at you in your need and your distress and say, what a waste of time. He says, no, that's my son. Even in our sin and our rebellion, he doesn't look down on us and despise us and think, boy, they've really blown it. I'm going to teach them a lesson. He looks on us in love. His heart's not hard towards us. He looked on us in our sin and misery, and it broke his heart so much so that he sent his son into the world to suffer and die in our place. He could, he, he could have closed our, his heart off to us. He could have shut his compassion off. I mean, he would have com- been completely justified to do so, but he didn't. And his hand's not closed. God's not tight-fisted. He's not stingy. He doesn't use his power and his authority to crush us. His hands are open to bless us and to provide for us. The psalmist sings, The eyes of all look to you. You open your hand and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. And so Moses is saying, you were a slave and the Lord redeemed you. You had bills you could not pay. And Jesus paid them for you. And it's that gospel remembrance, that right there, that produces a life of radical generosity. It's that gospel remembrance that cultivates a community of people willing to live by the rule, you first, then me. So look at how God's loved you in the gospel. And as we come to this table together this morning. If it's, re- if it's remembering that we need, then what a great place to come. Because as we come here, look at this. Jesus gave his body to be broken. He spilt his blood. And that is the degree to which he's willing to care for you and meet your needs. That's how committed to meeting your needs he is. I mean, remember that and repent. Remember that and find greater faith to move you towards a greater obedience. I mean, that's the reason, uh, and it's very fitting that we would come Uh, here this morning to do this. And so let's take time for just a minute to pray and prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. Can we do that? Lord Jesus, what we need is a remembrance of the gospel. And so I pray that as we prepare in these moments to come to your table, that you would provide just that for us, that you would help us in this uh, time together to remember. And that by remembering, uh, you would bear much fruit in us and that the fruit would be to your glory that we would be the kind of community you call us to be who look not out for our own interests, but look also to the interests of others. May you do that in our midst, that you might be glorified in us, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And as we come to the Lord's table, I want to read one verse to you. Uh, Paul's, Paul's motivation, the Apostle Paul's motivation to the church at Corinth to be generous is to remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. 
And here you have on display a technicolor, tangible, physical example of that to see. To come and taste, uh, take a piece of bread and, and put it in your mouth. To take a cup of juice and to put it to your lips. And the bread of affliction for Jesus becomes the bread of life for you and I. And the blood spilt for Jesus becomes the cup of salvation for you and I. Uh, Through his poverty, you and I become rich. Through his death, we get life. And as it says on the front of the table here, do this, come and take of this in remembrance of me. And so as Drew's just pointed out, uh, the only way to keep these truths in front of you, in front of me, is for us to remember. And so as we come this morning, we must remember And the best way to do that is to take his body broken and his blood shed. So I want to uh, recount the words for you. Before I do that, two reminders. First, is this is the table of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, not the table of Redeemer or of the PCA. Uh, And so if your faith and your hope are in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would invite you to come. If your faith and your hope are not in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we'd ask you to refrain Uh, Because the scriptures warn us that if you do not come worthily, uh, you eat and drink judgment on yourself. So it's just a warning. It's not just a warning. It is a warning. Uh, The second warning is to examine yourself in terms of reconciliation and peace. If there is uh, reconciliation that needs to take place in a relationship or in a in a context, in a situation in your life, we would ask that you go and, and take care of that first and then come next month and partake of the supper with us. We'll be right back here first Sunday of next month to do this. Uh, logistically, we'll have four stations of servers up here. We'd ask everybody to uh, come up the center aisle, take a piece of bread and a cup, and return to your seat uh, out this way. When everybody is taken, we will take the bread and the cup together. Uh, So don't return to your seat and have it yourself, but we'll all do it together. Uh, As part of the unity that we've just been hearing about, we take from one loaf because we're one body. uh, And we take from the one cup uh, because we are one body. Uh, As a sign of our union with Jesus, I in them and them in me, he said, in our assurance of pardon. So, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, uh, and when he had given thanks, he gave the bread to his disciples, he broke it, he said, this is my body, broken for you. Whenever you take it, do it in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup, and again, when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, drink this, all of it, because... It is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Whenever you drink it, drink in remembrance of me. Jesus says, this is my body broken for you, my body in the place of your body, my blood shed for you, my blood shed when it should have been your blood that was shed. So as you come, come and take of the body broken and the blood shed. Because he says, unless you do, you have no life in you, no part of me. Uh, I would ask the servers to come forward now.
And as they do, uh, let me pray. Lord Jesus, we do indeed marvel at your work, your mighty work of salvation on our behalf, that though you were rich beyond all measure, uh, for love's sake and for our sake you became poor, that we who were poor, impoverished in our sin, and sentenced to death, uh, might experience life in all of its fullness. And so as we remember and we celebrate that this morning, please come, Lord Jesus, by and through your Holy Spirit and feed us as we feed on you in our hearts by faith. Come and work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please come as you feel it. Taking the bread together, this is the body of Christ, broken for you. Taking the cup together, this is the blood of Christ, shed for you. Uh, As we do each month, we will be taking our mercy offering, and as Drew mentioned earlier, uh, each week we're going to have a testimony uh, from an individual. This morning it's going to be Mark. Westbrook, uh, and Mark is just going to tell you a little bit about how he has experienced the mercy of God through the church's work in his life. I'm going to try my best to get through this. Uh, some of the stuff I'm still going through, I'm not embarrassed by it or ashamed by it or nothing like that. Over the last couple of years, Jonathan's taught me about transparency, kind of opening up my life and showing all my faults and stuff like that. I, I don't mind doing it. Uh, but I only have five minutes, so uh, if you want to know more, 10, 15 minutes, I'll be more than happy to tell you about my life but, uh, and what's wrong with it, all that stuff. Uh, if you have two hours, I'll even tell you what's wrong with Jonathan, but that's free of charge. <laughs> when Redeemer started, we had one thing in common. Uh, we both needed a home. For two, for, for those who don't know this, For almost two years, uh, I was homeless. On January 15th of 1906, started a journey that I thought would never happen. Everything that I knew would get turned upside down. My world, my life, my faith would end as I knew it. I was a child of God, and I knew how to pray, how to study God's word. This, however, was not enough to stop what was about to happen. I was living in Polk City at the time, working for a security company in Lakeland, paying my bills and and helping out with my wife. And at the time, we were going through a divorce. My car was not in the best of shape, and it finally broke down. I called the company I worked for and and told them what was going on and was not sure how long it would take to get the car fixed. I was told my job could not be held, and no matter what I said, it didn't seem to help. I lost my job because I had no transportation to get into downtown Lakeland from Polk City. This was the first of many dominoes to fall in what seemed like a downward spiral. I couldn't pay my rent, then my electric, and finally I had no choice but to move. And the only place I could afford was the streets. I'm now homeless. The first week, 
was the scariest thing I've ever experienced. On the third day, without food, I was literally starving. So I started to make calls on my cell phone, which I still had. And I found a place that feeds people twice a day. I started to ask around, but soon found out no one really wanted to help. I had to find some place to sleep out of the way and where the police wouldn't force me to get up and move. It's kind of hard to get any sleep when every two hours or so someone wakes you up and asks you to move. Plus, for some strange reason, businesses at 2 o'clock in the morning watered their lawn, so I needed a shower, but, you know, that's ridiculous. So getting wet every night, asking to move, hungry, wet, dirty, what's next? To eat cost about $6 a day, but I needed to buy some things like a sleeping bag and a backpack. So for the first weeks, uh, that's what my money went for. And after that, my plan was to save what I could to get a motel room for the weekend, about $58 a night. Now, I didn't work every day. I didn't have a full-time job. Some weeks I'd work two, three days. Sometimes I wouldn't work at all for two weeks. This is why, well, I basically learned how to take baths under faucets. I learned how to eat out of dumpsters and beg for money. It's not a way. It's not a way for anybody to live. I thought, well, okay, I'll try churches first. After all, this is what Christians do. We help one another. The first church I went to listened to my story and and told me there was not much to go around, just enough for their members. That's okay. That makes sense. No big deal. So on to the next one. And there I was told that they give to one ministry, so everybody gets help. And I went to that place, and there was no funds there neither. So the next step, I thought, would be governments. There I found similar obstacles at at all of them. It was becoming clear to me that there was not going to be no help. And what surprised me the most, the church wasn't no help at all. No one wanted to help, and and I started to think on God, and and then I could see. As I walked, I I noticed how people would avoid me, stare at me, point, shield their kids from me. Oh, my God, I'm homeless. I'm a bum. I'm worthless, drug addict, alcoholic. I'm I'm not none of those things. I, I work hard. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. Why am I being treated like this? What, what changed in me to cause people to treat me like this? I didn't understand. People had a whole new outlook on me, but I was still the same person. I spent the next 10 months learning about the homeless, living with them, eating with them, <coughs> and sharing with their, their pain, their sorrows. I started to understand why I lost everything and why God placed me there. Mercy teaches us to share or to help those in need. It also teaches us to accept or humble ourselves so we may receive the help. Transparent, open our lives up to others so they may know what the need is. Pride gets in the way of this, and this is one thing God is working on me about. I needed a home. I needed a job. I needed a way to get to work. I needed legal help. I needed dental help. I needed food. How was I going to ask for so much? I didn't. God moved on hearts. 
and these needs. <coughs> one by one was met. I am not sure who's involved <coughs> or how much. I was just so thankful for the help. First, someone offered to do dental work done. Not just one tooth, but a complete overhaul. And God basically gave me a new smile. Next, someone had a place to rent, and they made the price fit what I could afford. Then someone had a job for me, and their hurt church helped with my bills till I can get to do it on my own. I hardly knew anyone here, but everyone was helping when they could. A group said to me, or says all the time, show the kingdom of God here on earth, and this is the best way to do that. I also got to grow in the Lord through my church, community group, discipleship training, CBR, Paul Miller, the POJ. It put all of this together, and I was learning it from God, and he was taking me through it step by step. When I stopped trying to do this all on my own and realized just how broken I was, God stepped in and made a way. I would never have made it off the streets if you had not shown mercy to me. These next words I'm going to say to you are not empty or hollow. They come from my pain and they come from my scars, but I want to say thank you and I love you all for your help. Bless you, Mark. Let's stand together as we sing. Uh, amen. The good news of this benediction is as you receive it, as you take it with you, it gives you the ability, it equips you to go out uh, and live a life that we've been describing this morning. So receive it now as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.